It is so good to see you today in, uh, in a, a week that is, uh, I don't know, can you call it back to normal? I mean, we're not, we're not pushing to bring watermelons or, or something else. Uh, yeah. Camp's behind us. Bob ate all the watermelons. behind all us, the and uh, it's, just, it's, it's fun, to, fun to be together. What did you do this week? <clears throat> well, we finished tearing down for day camp, and Briley and I went down to Pensacola, Florida. Nice. Yeah. And, uh, it bright was and sunny, right? Bright and sunny, one of the six days. <laughs> uh, so positive spin zone, I, I'm able to wear this shirt today because I'm not the same color as there this you shirt. Go. So, there you go. Yeah, it was a great week. Didn't yeah. get birth. That's yeah. good. That's good. And you took Griff with you. Yes. How does he like, does he like ocean water? He loves ocean water. Really? But uh, 13 hours in a car, not so much. So, yeah. That's fun. My, my week was not as adventuresome. I did actually, I took a great day off on Wednesday. I mowed the lawn. They're going to let me stay in the neighborhood. I'm glad for that. Trimmed off a bunch of trees, got all that done. Thursday, cleaned the garage. So feel like some pieces of, pieces of order have come back to the life, and mm-hmm. that, that's been good. So, well, good to be with you today. We have... We have a lot, a lot to cover this morning, and one of them has to do with today. You're, you're back to Revive. Yes. Uh, I sent out a message on Remind yesterday. So if you aren't signed up for Remind, especially eighth grade parents who are eighth grade becoming freshmen, um, make sure you get signed up for the Revive Remind. We do have two separate Reminds, one for Refuge, one for Revive. Um, and you can sign up for that. If you need help signing up for that, you can do it at the Welcome Desk, or you can come and ask me. It's a very easy process. You can either go through an app, or you can just sign up for text messages. If you'd just like to hear what's going on in the life of students, I don't send out too many messages, usually just quick updates. Uh, even if, you're, if you don't have a student, you can sign up I get uh, for, either, know. for both I of them. Um, but yeah, so I sent out a message yesterday that we are meeting today, 12 to 2, and we're going to do that for the next three weeks. That was not a part of the message, uh, but we are going to be doing 12 to 2 for the next three weeks. And the way that works, when, when the uh, message ends today, we all leave. Kids will go and get food. So you can go to McDonald's, Culver's, home, whatever. Bring that food back, and we start our day by just eating together, spending that time. And we usually get the ball rolling about 1230, um, and then wrap up at 2. So 12 to 2 for the next three weeks. Refuge, um, I have not sent out a message yet. I will, uh, but we're going to meet at our regular time, 6.30, 8.30, for the next three weeks as well. So we'll get, close out July um, at our normal times for Refuge, 12 to 2 on Sunday afternoons with Revive. Very good. We're, uh, we did do a lot of cleaning up this week. I mean, I, I think the, the crew did in my mind, probably the best job ever of just getting everything back where it belongs and, and all. And, Quickly. And there was, there was a lot of, um, we, have a, we have a loft up there in the gym where that's like, that's our storage, you know, that's pretty much it. And so uh, Michelle went through this week and did a lot of cleaning things out that we're not using, putting things in, making sure everything is in place. And one of the things she stumbled across, actually, we had a whole bunch of these. These are just some um, mini coolers. We had a bunch of these. They're great if you, you know, go on on a quick picnic. You don't necessarily want to take, bring it home or whatever. Got a few of these still sitting outside, okay? We also have a table full of lost and found items mm-hmm. from Quest. In fact, I found something for you. Here's your packet of dried crickets. Hope you enjoy the snack while we're, uh, while we're doing the sermon this morning. So, yeah, those are, you, those are your bugs, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Yeah. Well... Enjoy. Anyway, <laughs> um, 
But yeah, so as you walk in and out today, you'll notice the table there. Make sure, make sure you go ahead and take those things with you. Uh, good, good to get all that cleared out. Anything that doesn't go home today is going to Lorelai and Adam Brooks because Jared is going to wrap those up for him and give them to him as, as July presents. So, <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, we, we continue to be grateful for all the different ways that you've been involved in giving around here, whether it's the online giving uh, or, or the black box or the mailbox or whatever. Uh, just uh, grateful for the way that you've been, you've been so, so, so supportive. Uh, it's, it's incredibly helpful. In fact, had somebody after church ask even about um, the, kids going, the kids going to eat. Is there ever anybody who you know, doesn't have the money, to, money to, to go out to eat? And I'm like, what do you mean? They all have a credit card. But anyway... <laughs> No, they don't. But so just the, the ways in which people are, are thoughtful yeah. is, is really incredible. We had, a, we had a pretty amazing night last night. Um, I left a graduation party to head over here for, for a memorial service for, for Janet Swank. So Janet and Roger Swank have been a part of our church since, really since the time I was born, since 1963. And, um, and they've, they've really had profound impact on, on so many of our lives. When I get to talk about her yesterday, um, one of the things that I've said many times through the years is at newcomer classes, I, I tend to ask the question, why did you come the first time? Why did you come the second time? And people have a wide variety of reasons for the first time, but the second time very often involved uh, the greeting of Janet Swank, that she was a woman who remembered your name and, and all. And, and part of what I found uh, beautiful about her life, uh, here's, here's a woman who uh, she, I, she, she could meet you once and remember your name. I mean, just amazing at that. In fact, more than once she said to me, I wish I was as smart as you saying that to me. I'm like, the education I have, you can buy. The education you have is from here. And, and she, she would remember the details of a person's life. She, so as she's, as she's uh, aging, two things happened to her body. She started losing her ability to see, and she ultimately had dementia. And so, you know, you might look at that and think, what a cruel joke. I mean, uh, and yet I think just the opposite. She demonstrated that you can continue to love Jesus even when the thing that you identified as you is not there anymore. And, uh, and I, I, I love that. I love that, you know, when we were meeting over at the school, I knew that her sight was, was getting worse and worse. And... Um, she still wanted to be a greeter. And one day I asked her, how do you, you know, how do you know who's coming? And she said, well, I can't really see their face, but I can, I can tell by their gait, the way that they walk, who they are. And I'm like, you know, just to see the way that she continued to use whatever gift God gave her uh, for his glory was, was incredible. So a while back um, when we were in the process of looking to build the building, we put together a video that um, described the, the progression that we were going through and the progression of really the dream that, that God had placed in the, in the heart of our church. And I played that last night, and I wanted to play it again this morning. This is, this is a version that we don't show as often. Uh, Roger and Janet talk a little bit in this, and our, our equipment and technology have improved, but it's kind of, it's a little bit hard to hear what's being said. But I think it really helps you to capture the the heart of, of who they were and, and really the heart of our church. So let's watch that together. I could fly from the
just think, Jan, it was eight years ago that we stood in practically the same spot. And that's when our dream began. I remember back then we had a, a successful summer day camp yes, with about did. 300 kids that attended. Mm -hmm. And most of them weren't from our church. They were just kids from the neighborhood. And they came for that one week. And many of them accepted Jesus before the old week was over. And I look at this property that we're standing here observing, and I'm thinking, man, this is made to order for a summer vacation. Right. These were our dreams. Now I'm old and feeling gray. I don't know what's left to say about this life I'm willing to was not the dream of a, of a building relocation or even just a, a successful ministry. The dream that Roger and Janet had was that people would come safely home to God. Um, there, there was, our church is 140 this year, been around a bit. And while it was founded with a, with a heart and a soul for reaching people, uh, we went through seasons where that was not the highest priority where the people that were in the club were the people that mattered most. And, um, and throughout that season, Roger and Janet really, they resisted that mentality. They knew that God had placed us here to fulfill a dream, and it wasn't, it wasn't their dream, it was Jesus' dream. Jesus' dream, to go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I commanded you, and I'll be, be sure of this, I'll be with you to the end of the age. And so that really, I think that they helped to infuse that into this, the, the spirit of this season of, of our church so beautifully. I was sitting there at the memorial service and realized, my goodness, it was, it was, it was 26 years ago this Sunday that I preached my first sermon here. And, um, and to be able to partner with them in ministry throughout that, throughout that quarter of a century uh, was it was it was a phenomenal a phenomenal opportunity to be able to see that dream realized and then you know you're looking at they're they're going through the pictures and one of the pictures is of is of Jaren with a small group that she led when she was but a child and that, you know and then you know here we have this and looking at that and how could they have even known as they're as they're looking at that picture and thinking about the dream that this would be the person who would ultimately uh, lead day camp when we're finally out here and experiencing this. So, well, and to double down on that, I mean, little Aubrey, yeah, right. dancing probably in the exact spot that she was last week as a question mark. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. 
Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. So it's just, I, I, love, I love being able to see not our dreams, but Christ's dreams continue to be fulfilled. And, you know, I just got to be honest with you, uh, the day that we go back to only caring about us, we're just, we're just a, a pitiful, stupid club. Nothing more. Uh, it always, 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 always has to be about making sure that the next generation is brought safely home to God. So uh, we've, we've spent some time here over the last few weeks talking about the topic of discernment because I do think that one of the ways that we could really, uh, we could really lose what God has given us is to not exercise spirit, uh, good biblical spiritual discernment, to not follow what the Word of God has to say, but instead to buy into uh, the, the lies and just the abominable theology of our culture. And so uh, we did that during, during June, and then we come to July, and uh, I, have, I have one more that I want to do on. So it was supposed to be a June series, but we're calling it June series plus a week in July. And, and what we're doing is we're looking at the book of Jude, the letter of Jude, as a case study in discernment. It's 25 verses long. It's, it's the letter right before the book of Revelation. I'm just kind of curious to know, how many of you have ever heard a sermon from the book of Jude? I kind of suspect it. In <laughs> fact, for some of you, yesterday may be the first time you ever even read the book of Jude. So, so it's, it's, it's fresh white pages for many of us. And, and yet, I think it gives a beautiful example of how discernment works. So, so Brian, we're going to have you go ahead and read, uh, read the book of Jude right now. Uh, it's, again, 25 verses. Uh, feel free to go ahead and click and read that to us. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write you about the salvation that we share, I felt compel compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken, away, or taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error, and they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, 
blown among the wind. Autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all of the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, In the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others who show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. The only way to get the truth in you is to get into the truth. We need to spend time in the truth of the Word of God. Every week we encourage you to, uh, to come prepared to dissect what we're going to be talking about on a particular Sunday. And we, and we do that through a couple of tools that we want you to be taking advantage of. When that weekly update comes to you, the very first thing is called Sunday Heart Prep. And it gives you links to be able to go to the written passage that we'll be studying that week, as well as the, the audio version of it. We'll put it up there so that you can see. If you're using the church app, you can actually go to the second button down. It gives you scripture and, and, and songs for the week. On Thursday, Ryan posts the songs, and, and during the week we post the scripture passages so that you can come prepared. You can already be diving into the truth. Part of what I love, the people that are doing this, I can't tell you how many times I'm caught on the way in with a question. I'm like, we'll find out in about a half hour. Don't worry, we'll, we'll get the answer to that. But, but to come prepared already with what the Spirit is, is bringing up in your heart is so important. So uh, every week, just take some time, maybe on Saturday night, listen to the passage, read the passage. We have the Dwell, there app, dwell app there for you to be able to go ahead and listen. And if you need any of, those, uh, any of those apps, you can find them on our website under links and apps. The first one is the church app. The second one is the Dwell app. Get both of those and, and really start to get the truth into you. You've got to be in the truth in order to get the truth uh, into you. So we're going to look at the book of Jude today, and obviously as Brian's reading it, there was a lot of, wait, what in there? Things that you're just kind of, what in the world is he talking about? I thought the, the best way to, to walk through some of the details of the book 
is to turn to another one of our, our favorite sources. The, the people at the Bible Project do a great job of taking a book or a, a segment of Scripture and boiling it down, just giving us the, the necessary facts. So we're going to take a few moments uh, to watch the, what they've produced on the book of Jude and get, and get kind of the broad, overstrokes, uh, broad strokes of this, of, this, of this letter. The letter of Jude, or more accurately, Judah, according to the pronunciation of his name, both in Greek and in Hebrew. Judah was one of Jesus' four brothers who are named in the Gospel accounts. None of the brothers followed Jesus as the Messiah before his death, but afterwards they saw him alive from the dead and then became his disciples. All these brothers of Jesus became leaders eventually in the first Jewish Christian communities, and Judah was known as a traveling teacher and missionary. And this gives us the background to understand the purpose of his letter. We don't know what specific church community he wrote to, but it was likely made up of mostly Messianic Jews. His writing style assumes a deep knowledge of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures, as well as other popular Jewish literature. Jude had become aware of a crisis facing this church, and so this helps us understand the letter's design. It begins with an opening charge, followed by a long warning and accusation against corrupt teachers who had influenced this church. And then Judah closes by completing the charge about what this church is supposed to do. Judah begins by charging this church to contend for the true Christian faith. He says his plan was to write a longer work that explored our shared salvation through the Messiah. But that project, he says, got delayed when he heard the urgent news about this church, and so he fired off this very thoughtful but very short letter. Judah doesn't begin with how they're supposed to contend for the faith. Rather, he first goes into why. It's because of the corrupt teachers who have infiltrated this church. And it's not their teaching that he targets, but their way of life. Their moral compromise is what tells you they have bad theology. First of all, they've distorted God's grace as a license to sin. They think that they're forgiven and they have God's spirit, so now they can do whatever they want, especially when it comes to money and sex. And so Judah says they betray Jesus by rejecting his authority and his teachings. And Judah wants this church to know that the appearance of these teachers is no surprise. He transitions into a longer warning to stay away from them. He first offers two sets of three Old Testament examples. The first trio is about rebellious people who in the past received divine justice. So the Israelites who rebelled against God in the wilderness, they got what they wanted and they died out in the middle of nowhere. Then he brings up a story about angels who are imprisoned for rebellion until they face God's justice. He's referring to the interpretation of the story in Genesis 6 offered in the popular Jewish work called First Enoch, where the sons of God are interpreted to refer to angels who rebelled against God, then had sex with women and were judged accordingly. Judah links this story to his third example about the ruin of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis, where violent men tried to have sex with angels. Both these stories are about rebellion against God's order that led to sexual immorality, and that's precisely what the corrupt teachers are guilty of. After this, Judah brings up a bonus example from a popular Jewish text called the Testament of Moses. Like Enoch, it was not part of the Old Testament scriptures, and it was a creative retelling of Moses' final days and words based on Deuteronomy. In the section that Judah quotes from, Moses has died, and there's a good angel, Michael, who is refuting the devil's accusations against Moses, but he decides to leave final judgment for God alone. 
Now, these stories might seem kind of odd to you, but for Jewish people who were raised on this literature, Judah's warnings make good sense. The behavior of these corrupt teachers has ancient roots, rebellion against God's authority, sexual immorality, rejecting God's messengers. And this connects to the second trio of examples. They're all about rebels who went on to corrupt other people. So Cain, he murdered his brother, but then he went on to build a city where violence reigned. Balaam, the sorcerer, he couldn't curse Israel, and so he lured them into idolatry and sexual corruption. And then Korah, the Levite, he led a rebellion against Moses that ended in disaster for others. Judah concludes the second trio with a barrage of Old Testament images to describe the teachers. They're like the selfish shepherds of Ezekiel, or like the clouds with no rain from Proverbs, or like the chaotic waves from Isaiah. Their self-absorption betrays their claim to follow Jesus. They create chaos wherever they go. Judah concludes his warning by quoting from two other warnings, one ancient and one recent. The first comes, again, from the popular book of First Enoch, which claimed to contain the visions of the ancient figure Enoch from the book of Genesis. Now, what's fascinating is Judah quotes from the opening chapter of Enoch, which is itself quoting about half a dozen Old Testament texts about the final day of the Lord's justice on human evil. Judah then matches Enoch's ancient warning with a more recent one from the apostles. Peter, John, Paul, they all predicted that corrupt teachers would arise and distort the good news about Jesus. And they themselves were echoing Jesus' early warning about the same thing. And so this church should need no more convincing. These teachers have to be dealt with. So Judah then moves into his closing charge. He picks up his opening line about contending for the faith, and he unpacks how to do so with a cool set of metaphors. He describes the community of Jesus as God's new temple. And so they are to build their lives on the foundation of the most holy faith, which refers to the core message of good news about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for our sins. On that foundation, the church is to build itself through a dedication to prayer, by devoting itself to the love of God through obedience. And the integrity of this building will be maintained by staying alert for the return of Jesus to bring his justice and his mercy. And in doing this, they will help each other stay faithful to Jesus. Judah then concludes by praising the God who will protect his people and keep them from falling too far from his grace. The short letter of Judah is powerful and puzzling for many modern readers who ask why he quotes from texts that aren't today considered part of the Hebrew Bible, like First Enoch or the Testament of Moses. It's important to remember that Jewish culture in this time was immersed in religious texts. Jesus, his family, all the early Jewish Christians grew up reading the Hebrew Bible along with many later books that were based on and inspired by the scriptures. And we know there were ancient debates about whether or not some of these later books should be viewed as scripture, but regardless, they're still important. A book doesn't have to be in the Bible to speak an important message to God's people. And so we have many Jewish texts from this period. They're known today as the collections of the Apocrypha, also called the Deuterocanon, along with the Pseudepigrapha. These were all preserved and read in Jewish and Christian communities. They were treated with great respect. It doesn't mean they were originally designed as part of the Hebrew Bible, but they are part of the biblical tradition. And so Judah, knowing his readers that they would value words from First Enoch, he used them to communicate his message, which is this. 
God's grace through Jesus demands a whole life response, not just intellectual assent. Notice that Judah doesn't criticize or focus on the teacher's theology, but their immoral way of life, which denies Jesus. And so Judah is here applying what Jesus first told his disciples, if you really love me, then you will obey my teachings. For Christians, how you live is the most reliable indicator of what you actually believe. And that's what the letter of Jude is all about. It's possible wonder, watching that that you now know why we don't normally tackle the book of Jude. <laughs> 25 verses and you're like, what? What is this stuff? I love that he brings it all down to the fact that God's grace demands a whole life response. There it is. That's the message of Jude. That's it. And, and discernment, part of the reason biblical discernment is so important is because for a non-discerning person, we get really bogged down in all the facts and factoids and what's this and what's that all about and wah, wah, wah and all that, and we miss the point. The point is simply God's grace demands a whole life response. If I've been given the grace of God, I'll live like I've been given the grace of God. I, I want, you know, people with, uh, with prophecy. I grew up in a background where... Uh, we would have prophecy conferences. And these people come in and they'd literally have charts that would stretch the length of the stage. And we'd go through all these, you know, who's this and could this be the Antichrist and, and all, this, all these details and people would be fascinated. What, what's this all about? And my little mind would kind of go, what's the point? What's the point? Here's the point. Jesus is coming back. Are you ready? That's it. All of that was to say, at any moment, Jesus could come back. Are you ready? Discernment is able not to simply look at all the facts and all the details and discern all the little, all the little pieces, but to get the broader message. What's the broader message being taught in this letter or this book or through this theology? The broad message is God's grace demands a whole life response. I should live as if I've been touched by the grace of God. So I want to look at this book, and we're just going to look at, this is going to feel almost a little bit more like a small group in that we're going to look at some, some details, all right? I want you to see some things and then the broad strokes that, that go along with it. He begins by calling himself Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Well, if you've done any studying, you know James is a brother of Jesus. So you're like, okay. If you're the brother of James, you're the brother of Jesus. Why didn't he say it? Why didn't he say it? I, I love that. And I think part of what's going on is we know the brothers of Jesus, while Jesus was in, his, in this life, were not followers of Jesus. It's only after they see the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that they say, you're not only my brother, you're my Savior, you're my Lord. I love that he primarily identifies himself not as, I'm a brother of Jesus, listen to me, but I'm a slave of Jesus. And that's the authority on which I come. I'm a slave. It says servant here, but it's the word doulos. It's the word for slave. He's a slave of Jesus. He belongs to Jesus, and he wants that to get across. In this life, he rejected Jesus. But when Jesus rose from, from the grave, he recognized that he wasn't just a brother. He was owned by the Savior. The other thing that I love about this is verse 2 shows us the beginning of something that as you're reading these 25 verses, you can't help but miss. 
Jude is the patron saint of evangelical pastors. He loves three points. Everything, everything he delivers is three points, three points, three. It's never two, it's never five. Three points, three. Only 25 verses, and he keeps three points here, three points here, three points here. It's fun to read the way his mind works, the logic that flows from him. So you come to verse three, and he, and he really lays out what's going on. He says, I was anxious to write you a book about our common salvation. I wanted to lay out some good, rich theology. And having said that, I saw a problem going on in the church, and it needs to be addressed, and it needs to be addressed immediately. Part of the reason I loved coming to the book of Jude is because even Jude, Jesus has barely left the earth, and Jude is saying, folks, we need discernment. We need discernment. Discernment, Biblical discernment has always been necessary for the people of God. It's not just the times in which we live. It's always been necessary for the people of God. So here you literally have the physical brother of Jesus saying, man, you need biblical discernment. Woman, you need biblical discernment. It's vital. It's important. He says, I wanted, I wanted to write this theological treatise, but I got I to talk about something that's going on. He says, there are certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago, who have slipped in among you. Other translations use the word, they wormed in. They just, they, they didn't announce themselves coming in. It wasn't obvious. They just, all of a sudden they were just kind of there. They were kind of there. And their influence was starting to, be, starting to be known. People were starting to feel the impact of these people that were in, that were in the uh, community of believers. Certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago, have slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our Lord into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only Savior and Lord. So there have basically been two extremes in the church of Jesus Christ, and both have been lethal. One would be a gospel of works. There are plenty of churches out there right now that will tell you something like this. You can hope you get to heaven, but you can't know you will get to heaven. You can hope. You can try hard. You can do your best. You can be nice to your neighbor. You can give. You can attend church. You can, you can do all kinds of good things. And you can hope in the end that when you're standing before God and he puts all your good on the, on the big old cosmic scale and he puts all your bad on the big old cosmic scale that whoop, it tips the right way, and he says, winner, winner, chicken dinner, come on into heaven. Yay, good for you, because your good outweighed your bad. It's a theology of works, and it's unbiblical. It's not what the Bible teaches. Having said that, there are people that have gone with an absolute opposite theology. They would call it a theology of grace. It's a theology of the perversion of grace. It is not a theology of grace. It's a theology that says, once I've accepted Jesus as my fire escape from hell and into heaven, I can live however I want, do whatever I want. It doesn't matter because I'm in. I'm going to just 1 John 1, 9 it. I sinned, confess my sin. God is obligated. The Bible tells us he is obligated to forgive my sin. And so we live like hell even though we're going to heaven. And we say basically grace covers everything. I can live any way I want. It's called, it's called being licentious. It's, it's living as if you have the license to sin, the license to live immorally. It is equally abominable to a works theology. 
And he says the problem that's happening here in this church that he's addressing is not a problem of people trying to obey the law in order to get to heaven, but it's a group of people who are saying, live however you want, do whatever you want, it doesn't matter. You're a Christian, you've got your fire escape from hell, you're on your way. And it misses the point of the gospel. That if Jesus has died for my sin, and I have received Christ as the forgiver of my sin and the leader of my life, if I am a slave of Jesus, then from me will produce, uh, fruit will flow. Fruit that is recognizable. Fruit that will last. The fruit of my salvation will be obvious. The two are not divorced. The two are not disconnected. You can't say, I have Christ, and yet sewage is flowing from your life. The two don't go together. And so he's saying, in our terms, just because they have a fish sticker on the bumper doesn't mean they're a Christian. And too often we think that just because a person is talking the right talk, saying the right things, they're in. And Jude is saying, mouth and fruit, what you claim and the way you live go hand in hand. But too often, it may be a favorite Bible teacher, you know, we, we just like them. We've liked the books they've written, they've, we've liked their past teaching, and they'll put out a new one, and it takes a big old left turn, and you're like, yeah, but, but I've always liked them, they've always been good. We've got to be constantly discerning, we've got to constantly be asking, not just what are they saying, but how are they living. And folks, you should be doing the same with me. You don't just assume that because someone's standing on the platform that everything they're saying is what God is speaking. We're always coming back to the truth of the Word of God and asking the question, is that what the Bible says? And so we get this beautiful case study on discernment, even here where he says, just because they walked in your church and said that they're Christians doesn't mean they're Christians. Look at the way they're living. Look, look, at, look at what they're declaring, that it's okay to disobey God because grace covers everything. Paul himself said, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound, God forbid. There were fools in the early church that thought, this is a great witnessing tool. I'll sin like crazy, and then I'll first John 1, 9 it, proving God's grace. He says it doesn't work that way. Grace produces good works Grace results in fruit. So, keep going. He says, he, he gives us his first of examples, his first of examples of coming judgment. And even this, I think, is a little case study in discernment. Too many of us, especially in American culture, live as if here and now is all there is. We live so immediately. We, we live so much like this moment is all. All that matters, we never, ever, ever live as if there's a consequence for anything. And he gives us three examples of consequences. Three examples where people were not living consistently with the message they were declaring, and it led to their destruction. And he says, my goodness, pay attention. Don't miss the fact that judgment is real. Heaven is real, and judgment is real as well. And we need to be paying attention to both. But too often we only, we only want to see, we only want to see what we want to see, right? We only want to see the happy. We only want to see, we only want to see the good. And, and Jude is being really clear 
The path these people were on was going to lead to destruction. He says, pay attention, don't miss this. Don't miss this. He goes on to talk about this whole thing where this argument between Michael the archangel and Satan about the body of Moses. And, and even here, this is one of those parts that as you're reading this passage, you go, I never read that in my Bible. No, you didn't. It's not in the Bible. You go back to Deuteronomy, and it talks about the fact that Moses climbs Mount Nebo, God shows him the whole promised land, and then it says Moses died, and God buried him, and he gives a general location, but he says, but I'm not telling you where it is. I think God, God understood us pretty well. He knows we'd have broken Moses' bones into millions of little parts, and they'd be all over the world, and people would be venerating Moses instead of pointing to Jesus. But he never says anything about, about this piece, what's going on here. And so we know he's referring to other ancient literature that's not from the Bible. And you can really sit here and go, wow, what am I supposed to do with it? There are people that literally want, want Jude out of the canon of Scripture because he refers to these other pieces. What do we do with that? Again, just like I was talking about at the beginning, we can get so bogged down in the pieces that we miss the point. What's the point? Even Michael the archangel didn't say, I'm Michael, give me the body. He said, God wants the body. I'm coming under his authority, not my own. We as believers come to God based on the authority of Jesus, not the authority of us. When we pray, we pray, dear Father, thank you for this day. We pray our prayer. How do we end it? In Jesus' name, amen. We don't pray in Jesus' name, amen, as kind of a way of saying, sign it off now, or goodbye, or have a great day. We say in Jesus' name, amen, because what we're saying is, I'm not standing here on my authority. I'm allowed to stand here today confidently in the throne room of God because of what Jesus did for me. That's the only reason I'm here. Told the story so many times, you're probably sick of it. Kim's dad was the head of the IHSA, and we loved to go. We loved to go down for the state football uh, down in down in Champaign, and we would get the privilege of standing on the sidelines during a game. Not because I was Dennis Papp, not because he was Brian Papp, but because we were standing with Dave Fry, and Dave Fry could go wherever he wanted to, and we could go with them. We stand in the presence of God because Jesus is with us. That's the point Jude is making. The point Jude is making isn't about archangels and everything else. The point is he's saying even, Jesus, even, even Michael recognized he came in the authority of another, and yet these false teachers claim their own authority. And it's wrong. They shouldn't be doing it. He goes on to give us these examples again, this trio of examples of, of what these people are all about, that they're just, they're horrible shepherds, they're, they're vapid, they're, they're, they're nothing, they need to be swept away. And then he gets into this piece about Enoch, Enoch's, Enoch's uh, prophecy of judgment to come, again, prophecy of judgment that had come from so many. Look at verse 16, though, it says, these people are grumblers and fault finders. I'll tell you what, you want, you want to identify whether the fruit of the Spirit is in somebody? Grumbling and fault-finding is usually a pretty good sign that they're fighting against what the Spirit is doing in their heart. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. It says, would you look at the fruit? Don't just listen to what the lips are saying. Look at the fruit 
If you're going to be discerning, you have to do more than just listen to the words. You've got to look at the whole picture. What's going on here? He says, in the last time, there will be scoffers who will follow after their own ungodly desires. Those words came out of Paul's mouth, and they've been true ever since. And he's not talking about the scoffers out there. He's talking about the scoffers in here. He's saying, in the church of Jesus Christ, there will be people who will mock. And you need to be aware of it. And then he, of course, talks about what we're supposed to be doing. That we're supposed to be building ourselves up. That we're supposed to be praying in the Spirit. That we're supposed to be living in this way. But I love that last part. Verse 22, he says, Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire to show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Here's what I love here. He doesn't just give the warning about the evil teachers. He says some will fall prey to the evil teacher. Have mercy on them. Some will fall prey to the evil teacher. Pray for them. Some will fall, fall prey to the false message. Don't give up on them. Because they're the ones that need to come safely home to God. So it's not just a message of pushing ourselves away from false teachers, but it's a message of be all about rescuing the captives to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you before the glorious presence without fault and great joy to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, what's the authority based on? Not who I am, who Jesus is for all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. What a beautiful benediction. What a great way to bring it all home. He started by saying we are kept by Christ. He talks about us contending for the faith. And once again, he reminds us that it is ultimately God and Jesus who will keep us from stumbling and present us before God. So it gives us a short case study on what discernment looks like. But we, we, we need to be paying attention, not just to the words, but to the actions. We need to see the whole picture. We need to not get bogged down in all the details and minutia. We need to see the big picture and understand the big picture message of what God is telling us. So what I want to do is take what we've learned and, and move it with us into communion. Communion, we're told, has many purposes. And one of them, Paul says, is to examine ourselves. One of them is to have a, a consistent, regular moment that we come into the presence of God. And we ask the, how am I doing question. We ask the, is there some sin that I'm cherishing more than Jesus? Is there some pattern that I'm refusing to let go because I cherish it more than Jesus? We might even look at Jude and say, is there some way that I'm declaring a gospel that is not the gospel at all? Or is there some way in which I'm declaring truth but I'm not living truth? And so we get the opportunity in these moments before we take bread and cup to be quiet in the presence of God and ask the question, God, is, is there an area in my life that is inconsistent with the salvation you've given me? I want a relationship with you that isn't hindered by the junk of sin. 
And so I want to give you a couple of moments to be quiet. I think quiet is a, a great tool. Be quiet in the presence of God. Let the Spirit probe you. He says, pray in the Spirit. Let the Spirit probe you. Let Him reveal areas that you're, that you're holding on to something that God wants you to let go. Let's be quiet with Him and confess our sins. One of the first sermons I ever did here, I took a yardstick and I broke it into pieces, all kinds of different, some were three inches long, some were eight inches long, broke it into pieces. And I said to the people gathered there that day, what, what, what kind of building would we build if we all took our segment of the yardstick and declared it a foot and we all took our own ruler and tried to build a structure together? At best, it would probably look like something out of a Dr. Seuss book, leaning, messed up, all over the place. At worst, it would look a lot like American culture, and sadly, a lot like the American church, where more and more we are deciding what we believe truth is, as opposed to leaning into the truth of the Word of God. This is 12 inches every time, every time. And yet somehow along the way, we've decided we can design a better ruler, one with a few less inches or a few more inches, and together we build a disaster. It is only when we come back to living in the truth and absorbing the truth that we will know the truth and be able to spread the truth. I hope that we will have the discernment to recognize that we do not come in our own authority we come in the authority of Jesus, and that authority is attained through knowing what he defines as 12 inches. Lord God, we need discernment because we live in a time when all the voices are telling us a different truth than the truth. And we're all running around with our own little pocket ruler, with our own different size of what we think a foot is, and we're building a mess. Bring us back home to you. Bring us back home to your word. Bring us back home to the truth. Keep us from stumbling. Present us faultless to Jesus, we pray. Amen. We'll see you next week.